Good morning, church family. Um, Welcome again to this gathering of New Eden Church. Uh, I always enjoy just being able to gather with you guys. Um, As Chris said, and as I said earlier, my name is Joel McCarty. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. I um, was told that some of you were expecting Kevin Perry up here today. So want to welcome you here. You're welcome to come here. Sorry, this is what you get. Um, I got a cardigan, which I was told makes me look 10 years older than normal, but it's still not quite Kevin Perry's age. So I don't know if I have the same amount of wisdom. I'm just acknowledging the obvious. We say we're honest here at New Eden, so I'm just trying to be honest. But thank you guys for gathering. He will be up here in two weeks, Lord willing. So come back in two weeks. No, we're glad to have y'all no matter what. The, the gospel will be proclaimed regardless of who's up here by God's grace. So uh, Chris, thank you for that update about our global mission partners. Um, it is a privilege um, that both Kevin and I and as elders, we um, love that from the early days, we're able to send people out. Um, and that's just a, a grace that God has given us that we continue, want to continue emphasizing here at New Eden Church, not just here in Decatur and regionally, but around the world. And so, yeah, we're just grateful for that. So as many of you know, we just came out of the Halloween season, right? When kids walk around and maybe some of you have kids that did this and you get a, just bucketfuls of candy, right? That you feel like they're snacking on for days, um, just a ton of candy. And those of you who like really like dad jokes, like I can imagine Jared doing this. I don't know why, but he would like walk up and I've done this, like walk up to a kid and be like, Hey, I'll give you a million dollars. If you give me your whole bucket of candy, right? Just to see like their reaction and see what they're going to do and guarantee you. Like if you've got a kid that has not yet learned the value of money, they're going to refuse every time, right? Like they're like, they don't understand that a million dollars could buy them that bucket full of candy plus a million other things, right? They refuse it. They don't have eyes to see, and they really don't have the understanding to know that that money has much greater value than that candy, right? Um, And so even though, you know, you say that some of you, and I don't think anybody in here actually has like a million dollars, you know, to give a kid. If you do, let me know. Um, We've got a phase two of this building. I'd love to talk to you about um, (laughs) after the service. But, you know, even, even if you did have the money, right, they are going to refuse it every time. They don't want to lose what they have and risk getting something greater. And in our text today, we have something similar going on. There's this group of people, these religious leaders called the Sanhedrin, full of Pharisees and Sadducees that don't have eyes to see what truly is valuable. And if you watch, they're going to fight and clamor to retain something that is worth much less than Jesus and the kingdom of God. They're unwilling to risk losing what they have, the power and control that they have grasped onto, and in turn, they miss out on something much greater and much more powerful. A moment ago, you heard Chris read John eleven forty five through 54. That is where we're going to be spending all of our time today. So you can make your way there um, in your copy of the scriptures, if you'd like, or whatever tool, phone, or whatever you use, we're going to uh, follow along. We'll also have it on the screen for you. So today's text, sometimes I have more structure in the text, like, you know, points and, and main emphasis today. I think it's going to be best for us to just kind of lean into the text and see what God has for us. If you were with us last week, Andrew um, told us about the story of raising Lazarus from the dead. Even if you weren't here, you've probably heard that story before if you've been in church for any length of time. This obviously was a big deal, right? You don't just raise, raising somebody from the dead was no more miraculous then than it would be today, right? Like it wasn't like they were like, oh yeah, someone got, no, they were moved by that. This was a big deal. People were talking about it. 
And so our text today starts off in verses 45 and 46 with showing us the varying responses of both the crowd and the religious leaders. Now there were some in the crowd who because of Lazarus being raised from the dead actually then believed in Jesus. But there were others who had a different response and their response was to go tattle on Jesus. So they run to the Pharisees and they tell them, hey guys, like, I don't know if you knew what's going on, but Jesus raised somebody from the dead and there's people that are starting to believe in him. And so the Pharisees have an issue with it. Now, if you've followed or read any of the gospels for any length of time, you've noticed that most of the religious leaders don't really like Jesus. They, at this point, we've already been told in John, they want to get rid of him somehow. They don't like what he's doing, but they haven't really figured out what that looks like. And so they bring this, what's called the Sanhedrin. It was 71 religious leaders and judges that would come together and kind of dictate uh, and make rulings about how Jewish law was supposed to be implemented in the society and how they were supposed to live. That's what this community is doing, this little you know, group, this, the Sanhedrin. And so because of what's going on with Jesus, they call this meeting, and in verse 47, this is what they say. What are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the religious leaders are worried. They're asking, what are we going to do about this Jesus guy. Now, I want you to understand, this is important. It wasn't that they just had issues with people kind of following Jesus or believing in him or watching his miracles. It was that as people believed in Jesus, there was something different. And that as they believed in Jesus, it had implications for how these people lived their lives. And it had implications for their own positions of power and control. See, true belief in following Jesus, unlike what is often presented in American Christianity, is so much more than just this kind of private agreement you make with God so you can escape hell one day when you die. True belief in Jesus will lead you to spend eternity with God. That's a piece of it, but it also impacts you both privately and publicly. It changes the way you interact in the public sphere, and this is what had been happening. As people began to follow Jesus, their grip on things of this age, the the power and control that they had once sought for began to fade, and so did their dependence on man, which meant their dependence on these religious leaders began to wane. They didn't like this. Following Jesus also had incredible political implications. The gospel has political implications. It meant that they would walk around and with both their lives and their lips, they would declare that Jesus is Lord. He rules, he reigns, not Caesar, who was the ruling person of the day. And Rome wouldn't have liked this. This would have attracted the attention of the Roman authorities. See, during this time, the Romans had rule over the Jewish people, but they allowed them a sense of autonomy as long as they kind of kept the peace and didn't disturb anything. So they kind of have their their temple over here and do their thing as long as you didn't bother what we had going on. That's, That's what's happening here. But as people are beginning to follow Jesus, there is this fear that the Roman authorities are not going to like what's happening and they're going to take away this autonomy that they had given them. See, John, our narrator, tells us that's their exact motivation. That's what he said in verse 48. The reason they want to get rid of Jesus is because if they don't, the Romans are going to come and take both their place and their nation. 
So when they say place here, most likely commentators agree this is referring to the temple and the court surrounding it. Now this temple, so this place, represented economic security. It was the place where a lot of this happened. It represented their status, their leadership, their power. It also represented, in many cases, ethnic superiority because they thought they were better than others. So that's their place and then their nation. Their nation was, we, we could probably grasp that one a little easier. What, what we think of when we think of our nation, your, your national identity, um, maybe your national security and your military protection. They had power and stations and government deeply held cultural ideologies, just their way of life, their culture. And all of this was being threatened by the life and ministry of Jesus. Their concern here, let's be clear, is not a pure concern. They're not worried about what's going to happen to other people. They're worried about what's going to happen to their power and their control were things to change. They were comfortable. They liked it the way it was. So they get together to figure out the most expedient way to take care of this Jesus character. So they're having these conversations, trying to figure it out. And we're told that there's this man, Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas was high priest that year. That meant that he was in charge of this Sanhedrin. He was kind of the leader. And so after hearing the various arguments, he comes in and they've probably at this point discussed what it meant to kill Jesus, what the implications would have been like that with the crowd, figuring it out. And he just kind of steps in like, guys, you're dancing all around it. He gives this logical solution. Look at verse 49 and 50. He says, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all or you don't know what you're talking about. You're not considering that it is actually to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Like, look guys, yeah, there might be some implications, but just get rid of Jesus. Like you don't want to lose the entire nation. So let's just kill this Jesus guy off. He's the scapegoat. Let's get rid of him and let's save our nation. And in verse 53 of our text, we're told that from that day on, they plotted to kill him. So all the other people are like, sounds good. Like we've got our leaders backing. Let's just get rid of Jesus. They were, they were fine with Jesus. As long as he was a nice guy handing out free meals, you know, maybe helping, you know, things here and there doing some charity work. But the moment like Jesus begins to claim to be the son of God and the ruler over this universe, like, and, and it starts coming into conflict with my comfortable way of life and the way I like to view the world, like, mm, like let's, let's just set that to the side and we'll ignore it as long as we can. But now he's raising people from the dead. So we just got to kill him. We just got to get rid of him. If we have to pick our place and our nation or Jesus, we'll pick this one. Now, looking back on this story, it might seem absurd that they would hold tightly onto these things over Jesus. I mean, if you know history, you know that the temple was eventually destroyed. The city of Jerusalem was eventually destroyed not too long after this, less than 40 years, if I remember right. Seems silly that they would fight to hang on to this and miss what Jesus is doing. But maybe we could understand it a little bit better if we brought it into our modern day context. See, the reality is that we could stand in judgment on the Sanhedrin, but if I'm honest, I often find myself doing the same thing. I find myself trading the way of Jesus for some poor earthly substitutes. Often I, I might find myself or we might find ourselves more concerned with hanging on to political power or national identity or superiority than following the way of Jesus. 
If we find ourselves placing a higher value on being born American or even being born Southern, right? We like that one than being born again into the kingdom of God. Then we're not operating any different than the religious leaders in Jesus's day. Our primary way of viewing the world is not American or substitute any other like N that, that you want there, right? Whatever your temptation is for you, our primary way of viewing the world is Christian. So, so the things and the primary things that guide us in the lens with which we view the world, the ethics and the values that we hold onto are the values and ethics of the kingdom of God that Jesus brought, not any earthly kingdom. Now there might be overlap in that and that's okay. We should seek for that in the world in which we live. But ultimately, it's the kingdom of God that guides us. So, so some clues that this might be happening in your own life, and I'm speaking from experience here, is if you find yourself always stressed about losing our country, constantly worried maybe about the next election, if that's our, our posture, we might be being formed and shaped more by Twitter and Facebook than by the scriptures. Because the scriptures remind me that God is sovereign, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he'll do whatever he dang pleases. And he and his kingdom is what matters. Nations rise and fall under his command. And, and a little hint for, for all of us, God does not need the nation of America to accomplish his global purpose. And, and as I've said in the past, let me be clear, like we can be grateful for where we live. We really can. And we can love her and her people, but our hope and our identity does not chiefly come from that. It comes from us being remade into the image of God through the work of Jesus. Another example of this might be that we allowed our preferred political party to dictate the nature of our engagement on certain issues, right? If you never disagree with your preferred political party, that might be a hit, okay? So, so, and not just the content of what we believe, but this is something in the last four to eight years we've really had to deal with, the, the how we hold on to those beliefs. The way in which we engage as a Christian matters. Could, could I say as much as what we're believing? And so, so even, like, I'll say this too, in, in our pursuit of justice, let's make sure it's not a Jesusless justice. See, the justice of Jesus has mercy. It has love of enemy. And a justice without hope or restoration is not biblical justice. So, so you guys know I'm not saying don't pursue justice both individually and in the public sphere. I don't think you can believe, be a faithful Christian and ignore that, but we have to let the scriptures define our terms. And so this is something we have to be aware of. Now for you, you might say, I don't care about politics. Okay, it might be less political, maybe more theological, right? Maybe your denominational tribe, right? I'm not anti-denominational. We're part of a church planning network. Like those are great things. But if we find ourselves more concerned about saving any denomination or network over pursuing truth within our midst, then we've missed it. And we've seen this some recently, like things like sexual abuse, abuse of power, maybe church leaders lording over people, that stuff needs to be exposed and brought to the light. And if that means the end of a denomination, so be it. Just like God doesn't need our nation, he doesn't need our denomination. I didn't mean to say that like rhyming like that, but that's great. God is not handcuffed. If the SBC, the PCA, the Episcopal Church, or the Acts 29 Network, or New Eden Church all disappear tomorrow, he'll be just fine. 
His global church will go forth and the gates of hell won't do anything to slow it down. And as long as these networks and denominations serve God's kingdom instead of our own, by God's grace, may we be used. Right? So that's a bigger, more national scale, but let's check our own lives, right? Sometimes we're willing to follow Jesus as long as it means I don't have to give up any time or money or comfort, right? Okay, I'll, I'll follow Jesus as long as I kind of tack them onto my life that I'm already living. That's cool. As long as I get to hang around people that vote like me, act like me, talk like me, look like me, people I already get along with, great. But if that's all we find ourselves, like we might be missing the global plan of God. Like God's kingdom is diverse, made up of many different cultures. Like if you don't, if you want just a monolithic church, like you don't want to go like to the true church because that's not ultimately what's going to happen. So let me wrap all this up. I normally don't make that much application, um, but I felt like it was a part of the text and it was faithful application. So listen, here's the thing. Following Jesus will necessarily come into conflict at many different times with our own ideas and ways of thinking. We can have our own political leanings and denominational leanings. We can enjoy good gifts from God, but all of these are subservient to the truths of Jesus as we find in the sacred text. And so here's what we have to ask ourselves. When we have to pick one to get rid of, our own ideas and ways of living, or Jesus, God forbid that we would find ourselves crucifying Jesus instead of crucifying our own love for power and control and being right. And the question we have to ask is, is it worth it to surrender our own comforts and thoughts and ideas in order to gain Christ? Is it worth it to to lose my life so I might find it in his? Is he worthy? The religious leaders said no. They decided to get rid of Jesus. And I'll be honest, Jesus isn't here among us. He can't speak and respond to us in a physical form like he did when he was here on earth. So most of the time in our culture, we don't get rid of Jesus. We refashion him. We tack him on to what we already think is right. If my vision of Jesus would always vote the way I would on every issue or would always do church the way I would do church or would always judge the same people I would and be merciful to the same people I would, then there's a hint that I've killed the real Jesus and I've refashioned him as a made up Jesus in my own image. And that's a scary place to be. And let me say this from, from the heart of a pastor. These are some difficult things that I want us all to wrestle with that I have to wrestle with. My concern with applying this text to us as a church is not so that we'll grow as a church, I promise you. Um, in fact, in our context, it would be incredibly easier to build a Sunday morning crowd without addressing difficult issues and idols in our midst. But here's my heart in all this. For, for me, for you, and for our church family, I don't want us, any of us, to spend our lives holding on to the politics of this age, the pursuits of comfort and pleasure or the love of power, money or sex and miss what Jesus is doing. Like when I was reading this text, I I was moved to tears when I thought of this Sanhedrin saying, get rid of Jesus so we can just keep our place in our nation. This piddly little kingdom that we've created, like we just want to hang on to it and we're missing like Jesus and the work that he came to do in the kingdom of God. And I don't want for us to miss this. As the song citizen says, they forfeited heaven for Rome. In verse 54, at the end of our passage, you know what we're told? We're told that Jesus no longer walked openly among them. 
Jesus retreated. Instead of fighting for power and control, he just got away to the wilderness with his 12 disciples. And this is a scary thing. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. So you know what he did? He left. We don't see any more big miracles or signs after this until Jesus dies. And this can happen to us. And it's scary as a church. If we keep cutting Jesus out of our lives, out of our bedrooms, out of our checkbooks and out of our politics, he might just get the hint that we don't want him there and give us over to what we want. So revelation warns that the candlestick would be removed. If we're just building our own little kingdom and we say this all the time and we mean it, we pray that God would remove us and he will. And you know what we'd be left with? We might still keep the lights on. We might still have a crowd, but we'll have a form of religion with zero Holy Spirit power. And it's empty. And I don't want that. I don't want us to miss what God is doing in the world because of temporary battles that the world says you need to go fight. I don't want to miss out on the beautiful diversity of Christ church because of our views on immigration, or can I say the boogeyman critical race theory, whatever it is, like there's going to be something new in the next three to five years that we want to feel like we've got to fight. And let's just seek to unite around the gospel. God forbid we miss out on the transformative power of the gospel because of our desire for a merciless, Jesusless justice. That's motivated by anger and not love. And there is a difference. Or God forbid we miss out on the global work of God in the world because of our grasp on money, comfort, retirement, whatever it is, our security. And here's what I want you to see. Jesus is not asking you to give up your desire for a kingdom where justice rolls like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream. He's not asking you to stop longing for a community where both private and public morality and ethics matter. He's not asking you to stop searching for a leader who can bring comfort, security, power, and justice all while loving his enemies with the mercy that never ceases. He just wants you to look for that in the right place. And that place is a person and his name is Jesus. Sometimes it's scary when we talk about following Jesus, that you might lose your nation, your security, your freedoms, your wealth, or your family. But if we have eyes to see, if the spirit would grant us that, we begin to understand that Jesus doesn't call us to release our grip on anything that he will not replace with something infinitely more valuable. I mean, it's incredible. It's the work of the gospel. It's good news. John eleven forty nine. Let's reread this. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nations and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. Something so much bigger going on here. They're trying to kill this guy and he's united, making a much bigger nation than they could have ever dreamed. I mean, like sometimes what I call the gospel punch of the sermon, like we, we don't ever want to preach a sermon. Where we're not proclaiming the gospel. It's the driving point of every sermon. Sometimes it's like, you have to kind of draw it out. Like it's just right here in your face in the text today. And I love it. It's like Caiaphas, his high priest, he has no idea what he's doing. No idea. 
He foretells this truth about Jesus that he's going to die to save this nation, which had a bigger meaning than Caiaphas could have ever known. Because Jesus' death, the thing that he came to earth to do, was not to divide, but to unite the scattered children of God around the whole world. Jesus was not just coming to this earth, dying and rising again, so you could pray a prayer and sneak past hell. Again, like your salvation and the intimate nature of the gospel is a big piece of the gospel. Like I'm not saying that's not there. Don't hear me say that. But there is so much more. Jesus is uniting all men, women, and children from different cultures and tribes and tongues and political leanings all around one thing, him, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Even the disciples that he's interacting with, like give us a foretaste. I mean, people that would not have normally shared a meal together are eating around the table together. He's changing the world. That's what he did with his life when he welcomed in the foreigner, the outcast, the immigrant, the ones that society forgot, and he ate with them. And in his death, he is bringing about redemption for all who will repent of building their own kingdoms and instead trust in the one true king. And and here's the thing in his resurrection, like, like some of the stuff we talk about seems impossible in a world of division, but he is showing us when he gets back out of the grave that he is the truly powerful one who can unite all people. Because in his resurrection, he stamps out the root of division, which is death and sin itself. Jesus is what it's all about. And here's the thing, in the gospel, when you surrender to this king, the reason we clamor for our own kingdoms is because we don't feel like we're enough without them. We attach ourselves to them and they give us a sense of identity and value and worth. And Jesus says, let it go and I'm going to give you something more infinitely valuable. Drop the freaking bucket of candy and I've got a million dollars for you. But even that analogy doesn't do enough because what Jesus is giving us is so much more. And if we're more concerned with hanging on to some idealized version of an earthly country than we are with entering the kingdom of God, we're missing it. Abraham said in the scriptures, he's searching for a city. Even Abraham, who was promised this physical promised land in the Old Testament, is like, that's not ultimately what I want. It ain't about this physical land. I'm searching for a city whose builder and maker is God. So much more. C.S. Lewis said it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Maybe for us, a holiday at the beach. We are far too easily pleased. You have everything you need in Christ. The identity you long for, that I long for when I make an idol out of my political or theological tribe, I got that in Christ. And I'm free to live in the world, but not be of it. It does not have to define me. I can cast a vote and the guy I cast a vote for can lose and it not crush me because I got Jesus. The comfort and security that we clamor for when we hold on too tightly to our possessions or our resources or our time, we have that in Christ. 
The security you desire for, the, the desire is not in and of itself bad. It's just where you look to fulfill it. There is no kingdom in this world, no military big enough that can come close to the security of God's kingdom. If death itself could not stop the kingdom of God, nothing can. So understanding this and grasping this transforms us. As the Spirit's presence moves among us, it takes the Spirit to do this. We're called to do stuff we can't do in our own strength. That's the point of Christianity. You can't do it. Good luck. Like, don't leave here saying, well, let me just figure this out. No. You need the very Spirit of the living God. We need Him in our midst. And as this happens, it will unify us. As scattered as we may once have been, we will be unified around the gospel. We're free to release our grip on our, our stuff or our time. We, we live generously. We go and we send all the way to the ends of the earth because it's God's global plan. It's what he's doing. We want to be a part of that. And we also go to the people that are different from us across the street in our neighborhoods because it's worth it. We engage in the world. Don't hear me say, stick your head in the sand. Just hang on till the end. That's not what I'm saying. We don't pretend that things of this age don't have value when they're done with the kingdom mind, but our hope is not in them. And when it comes to laying aside our earthly preferences and kingdoms and political parties or theological tribes or whatever it is, when it comes to picking, hanging on to those things, or Jesus, by God's grace and with eyes to see from the spirit, let's take Jesus every time because he is worthy. When it seems like we're losing power and control, it's okay. We don't have to scramble. It's his church. Gates of hell can't prevail against her. And we just want to be a part of God's journey.